Father, we thank you for your word, how it provides so much direction, insight on what we are supposed to be doing. And for all the churches that are out there laboring away, trying to hear your will from your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would grant them your request and that they would move in that direction, that none of us in any one of the churches would be so stuck in our ways that we are unable to be flexible. But Lord, help us to move according to how you would have us move and to speak likewise in the same way and to live our lives in a way that is pleasing and an example to those who are around us. And we thank you for your grace when we fail and your mercy that you don't judge us according to our sins. But Father, as I go through this word here, I ask that you would bless it, use it, multiply it, the verses that are spoken, for it is your word that is powerful and effective, and it divides soul and spirit. And we'd ask that you would do that, Lord. Make us aware of who you are. Fill us full of the knowledge of yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week I covered the calling of the pastor that in Calvary Chapel, and what I've been dealing with, for those of you who don't know, uh, last week and this week only, I'm going to deal with who we are as a Calvary Chapel. What what makes Calvary Chapel different than all the other churches that are out there? Why would you come here as opposed to somewhere else? When I get done with this, you may say, well, I don't believe that. And if you don't believe that, I would encourage you to go to a church that you hold their particular doctrine. And that's where you can grow the most. And that's where God will have you flourish. When I was in seminary, I think I mentioned this guy's name last time, Dr. Donald Thorson. I talked about the Wesleyan quadrilateral that he wrote. And his wife, he said that his wife doesn't feel like she has experienced church unless she's been able to sing hymns. And it's all full of hymns and a choir and an organ. That is church for her. Where other people, if they went to church and all they sang were hymns, it would be like watching paint dry. Uh, it'd be very uneventful for them. And so there are all types of churches that minister to different people. And as long as they hold to the foundation of the Christian faith, what is orthodox, the virgin birth, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, tr- the Trinity, the deity of Christ, all of those things is, is resurrection and ascension to the Father and his return. If they hold to that, those are essentials. Everything else you can toss it up. You can fellowship with somebody who doesn't believe that, right? Uh, as an example of that, David Jeremiah, he has come and spoken at the pastor's conference for Calvary Chapel. But David Jeremiah does not believe in the gifts. And so we have this fellowship, but these are sometimes contentious issues. And we want to make sure we don't focus on the contentious issues. We focus on what unifies us. So we have the calling of the pastor. It's, it should never be, according to a Calvary chapel, a vocation, but it is a calling and nobody takes this honor upon themselves. According to Hebrews chapter five, verse four, when it talks about the priest that got appointed, he said, they must be appointed by God. Nobody just says, I want to do this for a living. And the same thing we hold to for pastors inside the church. And, this, and as far as the church style of government, I explained to you that there is a congregational style of church government. That's where everybody who is in the church has a vote and an equal vote from the pastor to the laity, to the elders, to the deacons, women, men, not children. They're really not considered the members, but everybody has one vote. And if we say we're going to change the inside of the sanctuary to pink and it goes through committee and the committee says this is how much and it's put to a church vote. Everybody can vote on it. Pink. Unanimous. It's pink. We're changing it pink. And that's how a congregational style of church works. Usually these are Baptist churches. Then there is the elder led church and that's where the elders get together. However many there are. And they decide, and the pastor is just one of the elders. And he has one vote just like the rest of the elders. And in that particular case, the pastor is subservient to the elders. He is not subservient or subservient to the Holy Spirit. And so it's the elder board that is in charge. We are not like that here. We are not led by the elders. We are not congregational. We, hopefully, we are spirit-led. And it's kind of like a Moses model where Moses went and talked to God face to face. I'm supposed to spend time talking with God, seeking after him, after him, and making sure that 
I spend a lot of time doing that, seeking what his will is. Then I talk with the elders and I'll say, what do you guys think about this? I think the Lord's telling me this. And they'll either confirm it or they'll say, oh, that's a bad way to go. I would not do that. And unless we have unanimity, I guess that's the word for it, we don't go forward unless the Lord says, no, they are wrong and go forward. And you might say, well, how do you know? That God is talking to you, huh? What makes you so special? Absolutely nothing. And guess what? If a mistake is made, guess who bears the burden of that? I do. I bear the burden of that. So if I make a decision and the elders disagree with it, you know what they can do? Sayonara, buddy. We're out of here. And what kind of havoc would that reach inside of the church? It would do terrible things for the church. So... In Calvary Chapel, and there are over a thousand Calvary chapels, all started from one with Pastor Chuck, we mostly operate in this fashion. And that's because in the Old Testament and New Testament, God called an individual. He did not call several people at one time and have them vote. And I gave you examples last time, how like Absalom in the Old Testament, he got counsel, and the counsel he got was bad. And because of that, he lost his life. Also, Rehoboam, he got counsel from his friends and counsel from the elders that used to be around David. And he got bad counsel from his friends. And because of that, the kingdom was split. And you got Israel to the north and to the south, you had Judah. And so there are several examples of this. Jeremiah, he was the only prophet in Israel that was declaring what God said to do. And the rest of the prophets are saying, no, God is telling us there's going to be prosperity and wonderful habitations going to be yours here in the city. And it wasn't the case they were taken off to captivity and everybody else was against him and they'd throw him in a cistern and leave him there for days and it'd be muck and mire in the bottom of that and he would say lord i'm just going to stop speaking but then the lord would move in his heart and say no you're not going to stop speaking you're going to speak and he would speak and woe is me if i remain silent you know that type of thing and so God calls the individual. If God calls you, God bless you if you get out there and you get to bear that responsibility. You know, the people that teach the word are going to be judged more strictly. And I don't like that verse. I've erased it from my Bible. I, I don't want to hear that. But at the same time, can you remain silent if the Lord has put it on your heart to speak? No, you can't. And so we want to make sure that our church is a spirit-led church. It's not a person-led church. If this church, oh, I got a question one time. Well, can you sell this and benefit from the church? Can you like pad your pocket? No, it's not mine. It, it specifically says in the bylaws, we cannot sell the church and have that inure back to me. I, I am just the person that is to serve. And that's part of the servant leadership style that's here. But this is how we operate as a church. Now, Chuck, Pastor Chuck was a little more specific how the church operates in his pamphlet, The Philosophy of Ministry of Calvary Chapel. Daryl, did you put that on the link? There's a link on the website where you can go to that, also with Calvary Distinctives too, right? So if you want to know how Calvary Chapel works and operates, you can read those two books. One's a book, one's a pamphlet, and it will give you more insight. Now, every Calvary Chapel believes that we're to hold to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 43, where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Those four things should be present in the church. You should be seeing those on a regular basis taking place. Like we've prayed several times this morning. Uh, I'm going to give you some doctrine this morning. Fellowship is crucial. If people just come to church and they don't fellowship, they're blowing it. And, and we are blowing it if we do that. We're supposed to be involved in fellowship. We're supposed to develop relationship. We're not supposed to sequester ourselves. God wants this to happen so that we might reach maturity in the faith. When we say something that's incorrect, the body of Christ, and there's no private interpretation on Scripture, the body of Christ can come together and say, no, that's not quite right. This is what Scripture says. And so we appeal to Scripture. As I said about Dr. Donald Thorson, he had the Westland Quadrilateral and that Scripture reason, tradition, and experience. Every church is, use one of those as their top one. 
how they govern a church, and ours is scripture, then we go to reason. Then we can either go to tradition or experience, just depends on which Calvary Chapel you go to. Some Calvary Chapels are a little more charismatic than we are. We believe in the gifts, but we're a little less charismatic because when Apostle Paul talks about tongues and the gifts of tongues and interpretation, people think you're mad because you're using this gift. And I've been into some Pentecostal churches where they everybody is speaking in tongues at one time. And that was when I became a believer and I thought this is weird I would hear this tongues on this side and English over here and tongues over here and I'm I was kind of freaked out and then I read in scripture later people will think you're mad and that's exactly what I thought that the people were mad but gift of tongues is for today and the gift of interpretation and that's where we are different like John MacArthur I love his teaching I mean, some of the stuff that he says is just great, but boy, is he cessationist, which means there are no gifts today. And by the way, this cessationist, and I'm jumping around here a little bit, but sensation, the cessationist movement says there are no sign gifts for today, which means uh, if you have tongues, gift of tongues, prophecy, healing, things like that, they don't believe that you should pray for or somebody has that particular gift that those gifts were only for the New Testament times. And they base that on the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says, where there is knowledge, knowledge will cease. Where there are tongues, the tongues will be stilled. Where there is prophecy, the prophecy is going to go away. And there's no indication from Scripture that that's going to take place. It goes on in that particular chapter, and it says, when the perfect comes, then the imperfect disappears. And they take that as meaning the canon of Scripture, which means the Bible. When the Bible comes, there's not going to be a need for tongues and prophecy prophecy and healings and they are misinterpreting that to the nth degree there's this inner church battle that's going on we just say you know if you don't you don't you know it's okay it's it's one of those controversial subjects that you don't have to we're putting a stake in the ground and we we are not doing that or some people say well let's see you can sprinkle when you baptize and others say no it must be immersion like a pickle you must be pickled when you come up and you know it doesn't matter i have poured water over a woman's head that could not go in the pool to be baptized but she wanted to be baptized and that's fine god knows what's going on it's not the removal of dirt from the body but a pledge of a good conscience towards god she's just simply demonstrating that she wanted to express her faith in god that she has been saved and so it doesn't matter to me that stuff now i would have disagreements on infant baptism that type of thing i i think in scripture whenever somebody got saved then they got baptized but an infant can't get saved right? They don't know. And I think they're saved anyhow. And that's a whole nother doctrinal issue. But I think little children, babies, I think they all go to heaven and, and they're not at the age of accountability and God loves them. And such is the kingdom of heaven and it's all good. So what about the rest of the church here? What do we do? Well, I'm going to talk about a few things. Lord willing, I'm going to make it through. Okay. There is that I'm going to talk about with Calvary chapel in mind, what we believe and what we practice salvation, discipleship, the gifts, servant leadership, the whole counsel of God with a subset interpretation, doctrine, eschatology, worship, apologetics, and grace. Now, you think I can get that done in about 20, 35 minutes? Let's see. Okay, salvation first. There has been this century-long debate about Calvinism versus Arminianism. If you are familiar with it, it is contentious. It is finger in the eye, kick you in the behind, and uh, we're not believing that, and we're separating, and it doesn't need to be that way. I want to let you know that when it comes to Calvinism versus Arminianism, these particular constructs are the constructs of men. They have come in and they said, this is how God does it. For instance, when it comes to Calvinism, there is the acronym TULIP. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. The total depravity is you're so totally depraved that you cannot reach out to God, you cannot communicate to God, and God has to, quote, regenerate you. And that regeneration in the Calvinist camps means you have to become born again. Once you become born again, then you can accept Christ. And they make this differentiation in Scripture. John chapter 3. No, you're not that you must be born again. Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. And they separate it and they go from you must be regenerated from that point of regeneration comes salvation. 
justification, sanctification, then glorification. And they put it in this row. My question is, what if somebody is regenerated, but they never take the next step and become justified? What do you do then? Well, let's make purgatory up. You know, so you, it's like it doesn't spell it out like that in Scripture. But through reason, and a lot of time Reformed people, and they will not agree with this, but this is my opinion of what they're doing, they will put reason ahead of Scripture. Like, for instance, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life, right? That's what Scripture says. When it says, for God so loved the world, you know what they say world means? Not world, the elect. For God so loved the elect that whosoever would believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Did you know that? God is unwilling that any should perish, but all should come to the saving grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. You know, and when it comes to that, God is not willing that the elect should perish. It doesn't say elect. It says God is unwilling that anyone. You know who anyone is? You know, in my house, I'm somebody. My wife says, well, somebody come in here and help me with this. And that's me. You are everyone, right? Anyone. Everybody is anyone. And that's the plain text of scripture, which I'll get into interpretation. But the Reformed Church, the Presbyterians, there's our brothers and sisters. We embrace them. We call them fellow believers. They're doing the work to go to the nth degree with Calvinism. They also believe that some are born to salvation and some are born to be match heads in hell forever. And I think to myself, you got to be kidding me. Aren't you supposed to take the gospel to the entire world and the world not being the elect, but the world being those who are unsaved? What a cruel God would come along and say, you must be saved in order to go to heaven, but you're not going. You know, you, you like something like that. It just doesn't make sense. You got to use that reason. You have no chance to go, but I'm going to give you the gospel. That, that is so far outside of scripture and we hold to our doctrine so tight. I've told you that if I see a scripture that says something contrary to what I believe, I'm going to change it. If somebody convinces me, I'm changing it. I'm not going to hold to it. But it's the job of the elders in the church to defend sound doctrine and refute those who don't hold to it. That means everyone who is an elder must know what solid doctrine is. And I'll get into the solid doctrine in a minute. Then you have the Arminius side, human free will, conditional election, universal atonement, resistible grace, and fall from grace. And like, for instance, resistible grace, I agree with that, but I'm not an Arminius. You know, when it, this falling from grace, falling from grace means you can be saved and then lose your salvation. My question is, can you get it again? And how many times can you do that? And then you're on the merry-go-round, you're off the merry-go-round. You're on the merry-go-round, you're off the merry-go-round. You sin during the week and you go to church on Sunday and hail Mary, our father, right? And then you go back into it the next week and next Sunday you go to confession. Hail Mary, our father. It doesn't work that way in scripture. That's a construct. If you are saved, truly saved, you're going to make it to the end. That's what scripture says. You're going to make it to the end. But there seem to be scriptures that say, nah, you can kind of fall from grace. You know how you overcome all that? People want to know what they can get away with. Can I do this and God's going to be okay? Well, what do you think? Ask God. That's where we're Holy Spirit led. And the Holy Spirit would direct us to scripture. And somebody who's an elder or a deacon or who's a teacher inside the church would be able to say, I don't think you ought to be doing like that. Like, for instance, do you guys think it's okay to cuss? Scripture says, don't do it. Wow. But you know, it just feels so satisfying when it rolls off of my lips. It just, it just happens. The Lord says he has given us a spirit of self-control, so we're supposed to stop that. Now, who in here is perfect and never said a cuss word? Oh. Who in here has never said a cuss word last week? No, never mind. I don't want to go that far. <laughs> You see what I mean? We're all under the same penalty of sin. And I've already talked about sin. And that's where God's grace comes in. And so when it comes to these different things, I could spend weeks on these and I'm not going to do it. We are neither, neither Arminius nor are we Calvinist. We focus on get saved, persevere in the faith, and everything's going to be great. And what gives you great assurance of your faith? If you have served well. If you haven't served well, why do you think you're saved? You know, that's pretty poignant. 
If you think you just come to church on Sunday, oh, this is good. You have fellowship, coffee. I like the donuts, you know, and you go home and that's it. And you have nothing else to do to God. You're not reading, you're not praying, you're not fellowshipping, you're not growing in grace. Why should you believe that you're saved? Scripture says he transforms us by the renewing of our minds. And that makes us into his disciples. There's a debate. Can you be a Christian and not be a disciple? Oh, that's a raging one. Can you simply just go to church, do your own thing, and then have nothing to do with God or believers the rest of the time? You know, I, I, I'm not even going to try to tackle that one. All I know is I know when somebody's saved. There's no question when they're saved. If you're questioning your salvation, well, I believe in God, but you know, I don't have to do all that stuff. You're right. You don't have to do all that stuff. God would never command that you do. You get to do that stuff. And if you choose to do it, there's evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in you, right? That's how it works. And so the person who walks away saying, well, I'm saved and I don't need to listen to that. What's the first thing that pops up? The pride of the individual. Get rid of the pride. Question whether or not work out your salvation with fear and trembling, God says. Put your nose to the grindstone. You think you're a race car driver, but you don't have a race car? It's the same thing. There's nothing happening in the life of the individual who is not saved. Even if you confess. Remember, there's the sheep and the goats. Lord, we prophesied in your name. We did all these works in your name. And he goes, depart from me. I never knew you. And they thought they were saved. First Corinthians 6, 9. Those involved in particular lifestyles. Homosexuality, drunkenness, those who are involved in taking drugs, and it's known as witchcraft in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20, those types of things. If people do that and say, it's okay, God says, do not be deceived. You think you are saved, but you're not. See, this is where it causes us to walk with God in fear and trembling. So that's the idea of salvation. I don't want to go too much farther than that. Then secondly, discipleship. We are supposed to be disciples. Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to read the whole thing to you in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. The job of the church is to make disciples. The job of the church is not to evangelize. Did you hear that? But... You have to evangelize people to get them to be disciples. And there are people that have the gift of evangelism. I was talking to a friend of mine, been a friend for years. He has the gift of evangelism. He gets really excited about witnessing to somebody. He loves to go to coffee with the Jehovah Witnesses and try to convince them that Jesus Christ is the way. And he gets all excited about it. It's just fantastic. It's wonderful. And he has the gift of evangelism. Now, for every pastor, just like Paul told Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Give an invitation to accept Christ. And we're supposed to do that, but we're supposed to be in the task, in the job, involved in the church, making disciples. You cannot do that apart from fellowship. You cannot be somebody on the phone. You have to be there in person. You have to pray. You have to commune together, so to speak. You have to be in the word together. That's why Bible study is so important. And I've said this several times. If you're not going to a Bible study, you are not growing. And if you're not growing, you know what they say, you're dying. You're sliding back. And so you need to be involved in a Bible study. You need to be involved in fellowship. That's just the way it works. And this is Calvary Chapel. This is what Calvary Chapel believes. We don't want anybody, just a straggler. We want to bring everybody in and say, this is God's will for you. It's God's will for me. Then there are the gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, also chapter 14, Ephesians chapter 4, Romans chapter 12. All of these deal with the gifts of the Spirit. Everybody has a particular gift. We like the gifts to be in operation. We give out gifts tests. You should know what your gift is. This evangelist that I was talking to. He says, oh, yeah, I just took this gifts test. I know what my gifts are. I'm an evangelist. I'm in I'm leadership. I have that gift. And also teaching. Th- those are my three things. And I go, man, you could be a pastor. You know, this, go, what? Yeah, you could be a pastor. And I said, you just got to bone up on the doctrine, you know, get that stuff done. And so we have our gifts. People with the gift of helps, you know what they like to do? I want to sweep. Just give me a broom. I'm going to sweep and just comment on the sink. And yeah, I don't like to be up, but don't make me get up there and do announcements. I don't like announcements. I just want to help. I can bake. I can do that kind of stuff. That's the person with the gift of helps. And they just love it. 
They'll get in there and when they're working like that, they're just all excited and they're smiling and they greet you. Somebody who does not have the gift of helps are going to be miserable. Here, donut. And they hand it to you. It's just not going to be an exciting thing for them. They want to do something else. And you got to find out what your gift is. If you know your gift, like if you had the gift of healing, I would say go pray for people that are sick, that are infirmed. And I believe that gift is for today. Somebody prayed for me once and I, I was instantly healed. And, and so this happens. Mike McIntosh went down to Mexico. A girl didn't hear. He prayed for her. She heard. It is happening. But there's people who want to deny that. If you do a search through church history, there are several cases where people rose from the dead. People were healed of their infirmities. Just incredible things. And this is all through church history. But it's not so much in this country. Why? Because we're scoffers, right? Oh, come on. Everybody comes from, what is it, Missouri? Is that the show me state? You show me and I'll believe it. It's named after Thomas. Thomas, Missouri, that was the apostle's last name, right? This show me, I don't believe it. Show me the hands and the side and the fingers and all of that. And then I'll believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. And I get that. We're skeptical. But the person who has faith, God can do wondrous things. So the gifts of the Spirit, we believe in those. Leadership, servant-style leadership. You'll notice there's no pastor's parking space. When I started serving as an elder, you know what they did? Okay, here's your job. And they brought out a toilet brush. It's all yours. Go clean the toilets. You know, go make sure, you're, uh, make sure that you're here on cleanup day. The greatest in God's kingdom is a servant of all. Pastor Chuck would go into the parking lot and he'd be disgusted by it, but he'd pick up these cigarette butts out there and these people, you know. He, and he said he had a problem with anger, Pastor Chuck. Wicked snack a racket, kind of like Popeye picking up these cigarette butts and how can people do stuff like that, you know. And he would talk about that, but he understood it's grace too. And so... These things, a servant-style leadership, nobody, if they get a title, that means you go down. You don't go up, you go down. That means you're sacrificing your time, your effort, your money, all of that. If you get a title, you might as well just say, I am now a slave of Christ. You don't get elevated. You know, the robes and all of that in some of the churches, forget it, man. If I have jeans... And this is Calvary Chapel. This is not just me. This is Calvary Chapel. Some Calvary Chapels, the pastor wears suits. Most Calvary Chapels, it's not the case. If you want to wear a suit, wonderful. If you don't want to wear a suit, that's okay too. However you want to fit in. But you always want to be mindful of the people, what their needs are, and minister to those people. Mike Madigan was an excellent example of that. He was a chaplain for the sheriff's department up there. But I'm told he was not only chaplain of the sheriff's department, but unofficially he was chaplain of the highway patrol, the forest service, all law enforcement that was up there. He would just call people up. How are you doing? Can I pray for you? Can I have a ride along with you? I want to make sure you're doing okay. He, he would just serve the people. And Gail Irwin's book, The Jesus Style, really spells that out. If you get that book and you read it, you can understand what the servant of God is supposed to be like. And Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he washed the feet of the disciples. And Peter said, what? Not so, Lord. You're not going to touch my feet. And he goes, well, you're going to have no part of my kingdom then. He goes, not only my feet, but my whole body as well. And he said, the person who's clean has no need to wash the whole body. We're just going to wash your feet. They're dirty, okay? The point was, you're supposed to be a servant to the people who are out there. The more like Christ you become, the more you serve. Christ came to serve and to seek after those who are lost. And so he is our example of what it's like in the leadership inside the church. This is not the case with all churches. The pastor or the priest is, you know, he doesn't even set foot on the ground when he comes into the church. He just hovers all the way up to the front. And, you know, that's a terrible place to be. That was never God's intent. Not that I believe they're any worse sinner than I. It's just a different style. And would I call them believers? Yes, I would call them believers. That's why Calvary Chapel is Calvary Chapel. That's why we don't mix with the church, so to speak, or become one with the church that has that particular lifestyle and that particular leadership style. We just say, hey, serve everybody. Now, going on from this,
the whole counsel of God. From the teaching ministry here, in any of the studies, we try to go through a book. We pick a book of the Bible, and we go through it from beginning to end, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And it's the whole counsel of God's word. Those people, and again, there are many churches out there who have topical messages. The topical message usually focuses upon how you can better yourself, how you can be a better parent, how you can be a better Christian, how you can be a better disciple. And all of these are good. They are not bad. But if that's all you receive, you will never mature as a Christian. To give you an example, this person that I talked to that was an evangelist, and he knows he's an evangelist. I said, give me a scripture that tells somebody how to accept Christ. That's what it sounded like. It was just like that. He couldn't give me one scripture. And I said, where does it talk about the gifts? Because he's talking about the gifts. Where in scripture does it talk about the gifts? He goes, I don't know. I said, where in scripture does it talk about persecution? If you're being persecuted, that is, God's pleased if you bear up under it, if it's unjust persecution. Where does it talk about that? He goes, I don't know. I said, where does it say in scripture if you want to take a fellow believer in a lawsuit? Where does it talk about that? He goes, I don't know. I said, if you're having marital problems, where do you go in scripture? If you want to give somebody counsel on that, he goes, I don't know. He could not give me one scripture and he has been a believer 10 years. Now, all of those things, if I just told you, if I asked you those things, could you give me the 10 commandments in order? I know Tom came up to me once and he goes, hey man, I got a coin here. And it has, you guys have done it, right? He walks up with a coin, can you give me the Ten Commandments in order? And I go, (coughs) you know, and I I gave him the Ten Commandments in order. He goes, okay, man, you got your coin. You know, so I got my coin and I walked away. And books of the Bible, stuff like that, that's what being a disciple is. And God wants us to be a disciple. If all you're getting is how to improve yourself, what does scripture say about you? God says, you're so bad, I have to kill you. Do you understand that's what scripture says? God says, you are not inheriting the kingdom of God the way you are. I have to completely remake you because you're so bad. And in our society, I've talked about this before. Our society says, no, you're good. You're wonderful. We have puppies for you that you can, you know, have a better self-image. No, Christ says we are completely broken. And the mood of the church in our country is moving towards how you can improve yourself. God says, you can't. You cannot improve yourself. In the book of Galatians, it says, having begun in the spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? You know, and that's the message of scripture. And that's where we separate with most churches out there. Because it's, how can I make myself better? And again, it's good to know how to be a better disciple. But go to the scripture and actually dissect it, mine it, see what it has to say. If you want to be an elder in the church, you go to 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus and you see what it has to say there. You go there for a deacon or a deaconess as well. You find out what it says there. If you want to be a counselor inside the church, you have to know about marital problems. You have to know where to go with that kind of thing. You have to be prepared. You know, it's like the person who says, okay, I'm a cowboy now. I got my guns and he pulls it out and there's no bullets. You know, it's just, you're just waving that thing in the sky or it's a, somebody who likes to shoot a bow and arrow, but they have no arrows in their quiver. They just pulling, pulling, they pull that thing. It has no effect on the individuals around us. And it's somebody who is not studying God's word, which is the entire counsel of God, who is not ingesting that, they forever remain infants. They don't know how to use the sword. And that's what scripture says the word of God is. It's the sword of the spirit. You pull that thing out and you slice and you dice. And when you give the gospel, you either do surgery on them, remove the sin with the gospel, with Jesus, Jesus Christ or you kill them because the word of God has the power to kill it comes in and says we are sinners if we don't accept that and accept the grace of God then it kills us otherwise it brings healing to us just like a surgeon's knife and so that's where we would separate we believe it is book by book chapter by chapter verse by verse even the difficult books 
like First Chronicles. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And you think, why do I need to read this? All of it's the word of God. You know, we've got to go through the whole thing. It, it's so laborious. It's so onerous. Yeah, that's your flesh going, you don't like this. And the spirit of God is saying, do this. This is going to help you. It brings self-discipline. And so the whole counsel of God, and by the way, the subset on this is interpretation. When it goes to interpretation, I, I how much time do I have? Okay. When it, it goes to interpretation, interpretation is huge. We have to understand how we interpret the scripture. And when it comes to us and our reformed brethren and some other churches, we take a literal view of scripture. If it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the result of sin is death, we don't say, but God's going to save everyone because he's not. And that is a doctrine that is out there. It's called universalism. Matter of fact, in a ratio, more are going to be lost than are going to be saved because that's what scripture says. And so when you're looking at the scripture, it's nice just to read it and go, oh, this is so wonderful. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest it. I mean, it's poetic. It is wonderful, right? And if that's how people read the scripture and do not mind it, they are making a mistake. Read the poetry. Get a lot out of that. That's wonderful. But do you know what you're reading? In there, there may be a metaphor, a simile, imagery, narrative, idiom, personification, hyperbole, illusion, symbolism, satire, sarcasm, parallelism, context, syntax, culture, poetry, a chiastic structure. When you look at a chiastic structure in, in scripture and you're going, a what? A key, a chiastic or a chiasm is what it's called. When you look at that, you go, somebody designed this. This isn't like the apostle Paul. I'm going to give you a scripture. Romans 10, 9 and 10. You've heard me say it over and over and over. Imagine steps going down like this, going down and coming to the bottom. Okay. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And so it's a mere image. It opens up like this. And what's in the middle? Salvation. You know, the entire book of Philippians is a chiastic structure. And you go, what? What do you mean by that? A chiastic structure. It starts out with grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. It ends, may the peace of God be yours in Christ Jesus. The grace of God be yours in Christ Jesus. And in the middle, from chapter 2, verse 17 to about chapter 3, that's the heart of the message. And so he, he designs the whole book in this step fashion. And if you recognize, that's why we outline, if you recognize the outline, he has a message right in the middle, right down in chapter 2, verse 17. And then all, this whole new level of interpretation and God int- God's intent opens up to you. And you might say, well, what's in the middle? You're dying to know, aren't you? I mean, Steph, and you get that particular message in there and you go, that's the whole book of Philippians. You know, Philippians chapter 2. If there is any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship in the spirit, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And it goes on to talk about Christ made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. And you look in Philippians, it has also been granted on you or granted to you on behalf of Christ to suffer for his name. And so when the person who is out there in the church that's getting this message that says, you can be a better person, you read Philippians, it says, die, 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 suffer is what it says before you die. And you go through the whole of scripture, you see how people are just blowing it and suffering and, and there's sin that's in the world and you can't preach the good news unless you preach the cross first. 
And there's so many churches. Well, we don't want to talk about the cross. We want to talk about what a good person you can be. And Christ says, we are not good people. And see, that's where I'll get to the last one. The grace of God comes in. I got 10 minutes. I need to go on with this here. And then it becomes the doctrine. That's why we have to know doctrine. Like, for instance, I asked my friend, the evangelist, and he's a great guy. I mean, I said, you are walking with the Lord good. Now I want you to run. And years ago, I I, I was able to uh, talk with him, and I think I had a hand in leading him to the Lord. I said, now you have to run. I said, I want you to give me one verse that deals with the deity of Christ. And he goes, I don't know. God is not a person as we are a person. God is not, well, I need to take that back. Jesus Christ is a human being, fully human. But he is also God, fully God. And he has never not become fully God or never been fully God. He has always been fully God. And so if somebody comes up to you and says, I had one person do this. He said, Jesus never said he was God. I said, really? He never said, no, he never said he was God. He was being kind of contentious. In John 1, 1, in the beginning it was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? He is the exact representation. He, he is all fullness of deity dwells in Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, right? First uh, John chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, it talks about the one and the only, capitalized. Jesus is the one and the only. Romans 9, 5, for theirs are the patriarchs from whom is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. Titus chapter two thirteen. while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God over and over and over. In Proverbs chapter 30, it says, tell me his name, referring to the Proverbs wanting to know the name of God. And he goes, tell me the name of his son as well. So the son existed in the book of Proverbs and the author of the book of Proverbs knew that God had a son. And so he is in the Old Testament. He's in the New Testament. He is after the resurrection too. He's in Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 through 16, which comports with Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. And that says, I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. And Jesus says, I, Jesus, when it says it in the book of Revelation. So we need to know these basic things. But if you go to the Jehovah Witnesses, the Jehovah Witnesses will say, no, he was Michael the archangel. How can you say that when you go to Hebrews chapter 1? When God the Father says, your throne, O God, he says that to the Son. That is solid doctrine. And you cannot be shaken if you are grounded in Christ. But the people who are getting the messages, you can be a better father. Well, it's true, you can. But... The majority of your feeding, it needs to just be vegetables. You know, you're just, you're putting those in one after the other. This is good. And then you get the meat. You know, you get a whole cow and you eat the entire cow. Meat is for those who are mature. And most of us need to be teachers by now, but we're not. Why? Because we have other pursuits. We say, you know, there are so many more things that are so exciting than reading the Bible. I will say, amen. There are so many more things that are more exciting than reading the Bible. Occasionally you get really inspired. You go, oh, this is so good. But most of the time it's like, I don't like this. And I got to go through this. Do you like to get up and pray? I could pray for hours and hours. No, I go, I could pray. And and you're not able to continue because the flesh says, you're not going to do it. I don't like this, right? And it's a constant battle. And so this idea that, Paul told Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. He also said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Now, I'm going to name a name here, Joel Olstein. You go hear Joel Olstein, my daddy, when he started this church. You know, and he goes on with that. You can be a wonderful person and God wants you to be rich. Hogwash with that. How do you know God wants you to be rich when he's rich when he says, you will have the poor with you always. I hate being one of the poor. I'm not poor like Africa poor or Cambodia poor, but I'm, I'm not Elon Musk. Neither, <laughs> neither are you guys. And so the Lord, you know, some of that doctrine is just so bad, but we like to hear that. Oh yeah, God wants to bless me, bless me, bless me. No, God wants us to die. 
That's what he wants us to do. Uh, marital counseling or post-marital counseling, I always tell the husband, are you dying? What do you mean? She's not meeting my needs. Sorry, buddy. Die. Crucify. That's what you're supposed to do. Then she'll be submissive to you. If you're not dying, ain't going to happen. What do you mean? I gotta, I've been going this whole time being married to her, you know, and she just doesn't respect me. Well, try dying. Well, I don't want to do that. And see, it just selfishness just gets right in there. Or the wife, I'm not going to submit to him. You know, he's a scumbag. I don't like him. And, you know, just all these, and you start fighting back and forth. Marriage is not 50-50. Marriage is 100% no matter what the return is. That's how it's supposed to work. And that's doctrine, right? We are walking arm in arm, but sometimes one spouse has to carry the other. Like, come on, let's go to church. I don't want to go to church. No, come on, we're going to go to church. And so that's how it works. Now, going on with this eschatology. What we believe here, our reformed brothers, Catholic church, they do not believe what we believe. Uh, Foothills does not believe what we believe, but they are believers over there. They are full of the spirit. Sometimes I don't agree with other stuff, but they are full of the spirit. They love the Lord. I know they do, but we are not in harmony with eschatology. But with David Jeremiah, we're right in line with eschatology. Uh, also with John MacArthur, we're right in line with eschatology. R.C. Sproul, not so much. You know, we're, we're not in line with our eschatology. And what is the eschatology? It means the rapture of the church is going to take place. There's going to be a seven-year period of tribulation. The rapture does not take place mid-trib or post-trib. It's the U-turn theory where you come back, you're raptured, and you come right back down. That's not the case. In John chapter 14, it says, I go away to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. And he says he will come back to get us to be with him where he is, which means he's going to take us to heaven once we go to heaven after we go through, or the people here on earth go through the seven-year tribulation. He comes back to earth. His foot lands on the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah. It splits, going from east to west, and land goes to the north, lands goes to the south, and he walks through the gate beautiful, which right now is sealed up. It is coming in the future. And how do we know when it's going to come? When evil starts becoming very pervasive. Is it more evil in the world now than it was when we were young children? Yes, it is. Is it getting worse Yeah, we might have a little bit of a reprieve, but it's still on that avenue. And he's going to come back and rule and reign for a thousand years. He's going to restore all things the way that they should have been. And he will rule with an iron rod at that time. He's not going to put up with any guff. And he knows who's lying and who's not. And people don't go up to Jerusalem uh, once a year to pay homage to Jesus Christ. He will cause the rain to cease to fall on their land. And they will go through a drought. He's already told us what's going to take place. After that... Satan's going to be released for a little while. And once he's released, he's going to deceive the nations again. They're going to go back in and try to kill Jesus Christ. And by the word of his mouth, he's going to just destroy them. Just bowl them over. And he goes, okay, that's it. Everybody out of the pool. He's going to have the white throne judgment at that particular point. Everybody who has ever lived is going to be resurrected. The books are going to be open. All the accountants in heaven are opening up. All the angels fly down with their books. They open them up. And whoever does not receive Jesus Christ is cast into the lake of fire. That's a place called hell and people don't like to talk about hell why would a loving god send somebody to hell forever matthew chapter 25 verse 46 says eternal punishment and eternal life it lasts forever it never ends and so those people who accept christ during the millennial reign they're going to go and they die they're going to go to heaven and those who do not for all time accept Christ or believe in God, they are going to go to hell. Then God says, wrap it all up. Everything is destroyed by fire. God creates a new heaven, a new earth. The earth is not going to have any seas in it. There's not going to be any sun. He tells us what the universe is going to be like. And we're going to live in the new city of Jerusalem, which comes down. And it's literal. And it's 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, either a square like the Borg in Star Trek or kind of a pyramid or a combination of the two. We don't know. But it's going to be a glorious place, and we're not going to cry anymore. And I'm out of time. We also, we focus on worship. Worship is primary. And the last thing, and I could expand on that more, the last two things, apologetics. We need to know how to give a reason for the hope that lies within. We have to be able to study to show ourselves approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed. If somebody asks us a question, we need to be able to respond right then. The last thing that I'm going to give you is God's grace. 
Grace is big in Calvary Chapel. Some churches, if you blow it, and you know you blow it, Galatians 6.1 says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Bring them alongside, say, we're going to help you. You're going to make it through this, and it may take you a lifetime. But we are to forgive you 70 times 7. As long as you know you are a broken individual, God's going to destroy our bodies and give us new ones. That is the grace of God. Some other churches will boot you right out the door. Tell you can get this right. Don't even think about coming back in here. And that's a travesty. But the person who says, I can live like this and God will accept me. Uh Uh-uh. God says, you are destined for destruction. Do not be deceived to think that this behavior is okay. Every one of us struggle with something. Whether it's anger, whether it's lust, whether it's greed, you can fill in the blank. Maybe you're a kleptomaniac. Maybe that's why we lose so many pins. You know? <laughs> Whatever the case is, God's grace comes in again. Yeah, I know I've done wrong and I need to try to do right. And it's a struggle for the rest of our lives. But God's grace covers all that. As long as you ask him. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is the good news. And so that's what we do as a Calvary Chapel. I tried to get it all in. I didn't quite make it there. But if you have questions about our practice, you know, what we do, the home fellowships, uh, what we teach, whether midweek or uh, in the home fellowship or in the studies, you know, you can just ask Sunday morning. But that's what we do. Chapter by chapter, book by book, verse by verse. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it is meant to guide us and set us in the right direction. And we understand that we have been called to minister to a particular group of people as Calvary chapels. And the other churches, Lord, they minister to a particular group of people as well. And they belong to you too. So, Father, help us to focus on the things that unite us and not the things that divide us. Help us to have fellowship with our fellow believers and help us not to shun those who just have differing views on the non-essentials. But Father, help us to stand up for solid doctrine, the orthodox teaching of the Christian faith that is, as it has been handed down by the apostles. And by your grace, we will accomplish this in Jesus' name. Amen.